Well, over the last couple of weeks, we have looked at the covenant from the point of view of uh, a nation. Then we looked at the covenant and terms of love to an individual. And this morning we come to Psalm 8. So if you could turn there in your Bibles to Psalm 8. And we look at the covenant of the Lord God over all of creation. And as stated in our reading, um, or at least the John 15 reading, it should be abundantly clear um, that our fruitfulness depends on being in union with Christ Jesus. So let us come to Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouths of babes and infants. You have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning, and we pray uh, that you will forever enlighten our mind to bring us to clarity that we may live in the light of what we read and understand that, Father God, that we may be people who are doers of the word. But sometimes, Father God, your word is simply draws our attention to all the right and beautiful things. And that is what this psalm does for us this morning. And so we ask, Father God, that we would gaze upon your truth, goodness, and beauty this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So from beginning to end, this psalm is about why God is worthy of your praise. And praise is to speak well of someone. When you praise someone, you are saying something that is true about them. And when you speak well of a person, especially when you are affirming those things which are true, it resonates with the heart and they can never be dislodged. However, if it is flattery, it puffs up for a while, only for that person to be left more deflated afterwards. And this is in important, especially for pastors and elders, and as we learned this morning in Sunday school, how important language is, to make sure that the right words are spoken in the right way so that you are building up, not puffing up, so that you are reflecting truth, goodness, and beauty, and not hiding truth, goodness, and beauty. And so what this psalm does, it is the difference between a window and a wall. Walls you cannot see through. Walls hold the roof on your head. Walls divide rooms. But windows, the purpose of a window is to see through it to what is on the other side, to see the beauty <clears throat> on the other side. <clears throat> and so Psalm 8, in many ways, is a spiritual window. It is a realistic window 
where we get to see the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of God's creation, and beyond God's creation to God himself. And then hence why the psalm begins uh, and ends with the same reflection, how majestic is the Lord's name in all the earth. And what it means is this, is that the Lord cannot be contained by his creation. The Lord God cannot be contained by his creation. And secondly, it means that God's blessings towards those he has created cannot be counted. They are innumerable. And so already we are expanding the limits of our imagination. We're expanding the limits of what we can see and hear beyond that. Psalm 8 gives us a window to the truth that God cannot be contained. God is here. He is present with us, but he cannot be contained by this room. He cannot be contained by us. And so God's blessings, though felt here this morning, again cannot be contained here alone because they are innumerable. And so as a Christian, not only are you being stretched in a way that allows you to see God in much greater ways, you're being opened up to receive many more of God's blessings. But as the reading states in John 15, that all true blessing, all true fruitfulness only exists in union with Christ. And that means that when you belong to Christ, you get to enjoy these things. Prior to that, you maybe get a glimpse of them, but you certainly cannot taste and see that the Lord is good. And the trouble with imagination is that imagination can give us pleasures that are neither true, good, or beautiful. And the man's imagination is somewhat endless. In fact, a man can even sin with his imagination. And yet the concrete reality of what is true, good, and beautiful is found in what God has made, including you. And so we move beyond our imaginations. We can imagine that the Lord is good, but the instruction is to taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, that's different than imagining. That's different than simply trying to perceive. That is actually experiencing the goodness of God. And so this is what Psalm 8 is drawing us into. Don't imagine what God is like. Come and know what God is like. Don't imagine what God is like. Come and see for yourself what God is like, with new eyes to see, of course, in Christ Jesus. And so this psalm draws our attention in two ways. It draws our attention, firstly, to the unfallen condition of man in his original state. That when God created man, man was unfallen. He was without sin. But man quickly fell into sin, and therefore we need a second man. We need a new Adam. And that new Adam is, of course, Christ. And now what was true, or at least partly true of the original man, now becomes completely true in Christ. Because Christ lived the life that we could not live and he accomplished the things that we could not accomplish. And so everything that was true in the original creation is true in Christ and more so because he is fully God and fully man. And so this is just an ever-increasing beauty, an ever-increasing truth, good, and beauty. It is just expanding all the time the more you think upon these verses. And so the image that we have is somewhat of making room. Now, I've never 
thought about this prior to reading the Psalms, but when I first read the Psalms, you get this image of how is it possible to make room for a God who cannot be contained? How is it possible for God to enter into your life a God who cannot be contained? How much room do you have to make for God when God takes up residence in your heart? What can stay and what has to go? I mean, we experience this when we have new things entering the home. And so we have a new piece of furniture coming in and old pieces have to go because the two cannot coexist in the same room. There's just not enough room, there's not enough space. And now think about this when God who is the creator of all, not only comes firstly into creation, but then after the incarnation enters into your heart by his spirit. A God who cannot be contained by his creation dwells within you. Think about that. This is the beauty and the stretch that Psalm 8 leads us down. God dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. Now, of course, the psalm itself doesn't go that far, <clears throat> but the psalm read in light of the New Testament clearly takes us to those places and beyond. And so how much room do you make for God dwelling in your life? How much time do you give to God who cannot be contained as he dwells within your very being? And this is, a, this is a stretching question because it, it means that we, we're, we're trying to understand the greatness of God, but we cannot fall into the error of thinking that God can be contained in a space. The question is one of dominion. The question is one of influence. The question is one of lordship. Does the Lord your God reign over all of you without any exceptions? This is really the area that we are driving into this morning. And therefore, I've titled this sermon, Life is Not an Experiment, as sort of an answer to those who think that it might be. That life is well-ordered. It was well-ordered by God in the beginning. It is reordered by God in Christ in the new creation, in us becoming new creations in Christ Jesus. And so what we begin to experience in Christ is something more than what Adam had because we get to enjoy the reality of redemption. We get to enjoy the reality of being set free from bondage and sin. We get to enjoy the reality of what is actually coming in the future. And so what we're understanding here is the relationship between God and man. And so man in his unfallen condition had one relationship. Man in his fallen condition had another. And now mankind, us in Christ Jesus, get to enjoy things that the previous two did not. And so Psalm 8 is just drawing ever before, uh, even more deeper and deeper into the reality of what it means to belong to God who cannot be contained. How majestic is his name in all of creation. And so life cannot be an experiment. It cannot be something that you try this and you try that to somehow work your way to a conclusion. Because I can tell you now that those who live life working their way to a conclusion will never arrive at it. <clears throat> as if life is an experiment for things 
ought, need to be ordered to arrive at a conclusion. No, the conclusion is Christ. We are created in Christ Jesus for his glory. All things were created through him and for him. That's the starting point, not the conclusion. Well, it's the conclusion as well, but the point is it's all encompassed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, put away your experiments. It is time to live in light of what it is to be complete when you belong to God. And of course, a person who does not belong to God is a person who is not complete. Because a person was created in God's image. And a person, uh, a true person, now is one who belongs to Christ. And so now we begin to understand what a person is in light of truth, goodness, and beauty. Now, the relationship of the transcendentals, of truth, of goodness, and beauty, can be understood in a very covenantal way, that what God does is true, it is good, and it is beautiful. And these are objective truths. They are objective realities. I was once teaching at Sheffield University, in which one of the students in the Christian Union said, well, what do you do when someone says there is no such thing as truth? And the answer is, every Sunday school child knows this, you simply ask them if that is true. No such thing as truth. Is that true? Yeah. Well, is that not a truth? You see the problem. You cannot get rid of truth because, it is some, because you cannot get rid of God. And you cannot get rid of real goodness you can have alternative things that look good and taste horrible, that look beautiful, but underneath are nothing more than a monster. And so now you begin to see there are counterfeits, but you cannot get rid of those things which God has created. And so those people who treat truth, goodness, and beauty as subjective as personal preferences, as simply what I like over and against what somebody else likes, then what you can expect to happen is relationships breaking down. Divorces happen. All of a sudden, you can expect children to be mistreated because suddenly you have got rid of the objective reality of truth, goodness, and beauty. You are now only left with a subjective version of it, which means essentially anybody can decide what they believe is right or wrong, good or not, beautiful or not. And so I said this the other day in a meeting, I said, I find my wife beautiful. Subjectively, I find my wife beautiful, but she must be objectively beautiful, not just subjectively beautiful. It cannot be just the case that she's beautiful as in the eye of the beholder, there must be a beauty found in the truth of marriage and in the goodness of marriage, which leads to a kind of beauty that goes way beyond appearances. Well, that's what we have when we understand what God has actually created. And this is why, I think I've said this to you before, when you express your love, express it objectively, not subjectively. Don't ever tell your wife that her hair looks great um, that you love her because her hair looks great. Because when she comes down one Sunday morning and it doesn't look great, what do you think she's going to think? Well, has, my, has your love for me changed because my hair has changed? What if it's her dress size? Right? Has your love for me changed because I've changed? 
And so the moment we enter into these subjectives, where I love you as long as it's like this, and we lose the objective, we're no longer truly loving anybody, truly respecting what God has actually created. All that is happening is a person is forever trying to arrive at what they imagine and never get there. They're trying to arrive at what they think is beautiful and the moment they get it, they then move on to something else because that is just the way sin works. It never leads you to satisfaction. You are never satisfied. And so what God has created here allows the psalmist, Psalm David, to say, how majestic is the name of God in all the earth? Why? Because his dominion reigns over all, and man lives under the divine obligations. And the divine obligations is that we do what God says, that truth is what God says it is, that beautiful is what God says it is, that good is what God says says is good. Remember the rich ruler who came to Jesus, good teacher, how can I get eternal life? Well, no one is good but God alone. Jesus is the one who defines what is good. And we are constantly a people who need correcting because we lower our standards to what we think good actually is. And so the divine obligation is an obligation to see things as God sees them to live as God wants us to live. Our life is full of blessing when we live under the divine obligation. And the moment we reject the divine obligation, our life looks as if we get what we want, but we get nothing but corruption. We do not get the beauty of what God has actually created. And this is what we see over and over and over again. So let me walk through Psalm 8 for you. You would have noticed, I'm sure, that the psalm begins and ends in exactly the same way. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then the body of this psalm is really about the glory of God and the instruments that God uses to bring glory to him and to demonstrate his dominion over all of creation. This is what the psalm is about. Then it goes on in verses 2 and 3 to speak about how infants and the heavens are both drawing attention to the things of God. And in fact, in Matthew 21, when they are in the temple and Jesus has to go in and overturn the temples, the tables, because they are robbing God, what are they robbing God of? Jesus is quoting Jeremiah 7, but what are they robbing God of? Sometimes we read that passage and think, oh, they're robbing people because of the temple taxes. And the thing that Jesus is really angry with is the fact that they are robbing the people. No, he says you're robbing God. But well, how are they robbing God? Well, the temple is a place of prayer and praise. And in the temple, God was receiving none of what he deserved and so they were robbing God of that which was rightly due to his name. And so as they were robbing God of that of what was rightly due to his name, the next thing that he says is that even out of the mouths of infants, praises will be sung. In other words, God is choosing an instrument that is a child to actually vindicate his glory 
over and above those who should know better. Those in the temple should be the very ones drawing the people's attention to the glory of God. Instead, they're robbing him. And so God uh, uses children as his instruments to vindicate his glory as a criticism against the religious leaders, but also a reminder to us that we are all instruments in the hand of God. That is what your life is. And because you have a will, and because you can freely use it, you must use it in a way where you bring yourself under the divine obligation of the truth, the good, and the beautiful. That as you live that way, you get to enjoy the blessings of living that way. But the moment you suppress that, well, you then begin to create things in your life that sometimes you cannot get rid of. And I've often said that when a, when a couple have an argument, and because, an, because you're in union with each other, imagine a married couple, that the moment that married couple has an argument, the invisible string between them is, gets into several knots. And sometimes it is possible for those knots to be undone over a short period of time. But sometimes it is equally possible after years of arguments that you just cannot undo the knots that were once done, and so you have to live with them. And sometimes they can be quite painful. And so when we reject God's way, we end up creating these almost continual knots in our relationships with others, in our relationships with our children, whoever it may be. We call them consequences that we just cannot get rid of. Now, God forgives us, and God restores us, and God is most definitely one who restores us the years that the locusts have eaten. God goes above and beyond with his blessings, but sometimes you're left with the past in the future. And that is because you are rejecting the divine obligation in exactly the same way Adam and Eve did in the garden. And then in verse 4, we have this rhetorical question, maybe a hyperbole, of what is man that God is mindful of him? Now, of course, this could be a true reflection of God is, cannot be contained, and here I am contained by a few square inches. What is man that God should be mindful of man? Now, of course, the answer is, of course, he is made in the image of God. But this question is asked to draw us, to draw our attention to the fact of the greatness of God and the smallness of man. It could be hyperbole. It could be asked with a sense of seriousness that I'm not entirely sure I know what God thinks of man fully. But the answer is quite clear. Then it goes on to say that what is the son of man that you care for him? Now, of course, there are two ways of looking at this, and both are true. The first is that we can think of normal man in his fallen state. What has man become that God should be mindful of him? Man sins against God. Man turns his back on God. Man pays no attention to the Lord his God. He doesn't offer him praise. He doesn't offer him offerings. He, he just goes his own way. He has good days and he has bad days, but essentially the direction of man's heart is sinful all the time. What is man that God should be mindful of such a person? That is true. But what is man that God should be mindful of him? Well, because you're made in his image. That is also true. 
And so now we begin to see both the beauty and the complexity of how does God get someone who has fallen yet made in his image back to the place where he ought to be. And I think this is where the Son of Man is used in Hebrews 2, chapter 2, most beautifully. Because the Son of Man there is clearly referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's clearly referring to the fact of the second Adam doing for us what the first Adam led us into. So the first Adam led us into sin, the second Adam leads us out. The first Adam brought us into condemnation and Christ is the one that redeems us from the pit, that sets the shackles free, that we are set free from the bondage of sin. And so now we begin to see that we can only truly appreciate the extent of this psalm by going to places like Hebrews 2, where we get to see that the, the complexity of God's design, it must be understood in the light of Christ. It cannot just be understood in the light of this psalm alone. He could just be talking about man as man, and there's nothing wrong there. But when you read this psalm in the light of the New Testament, especially when Hebrews chapter 2 uses this passage, it is abundantly clear that we are now thinking about Christ and the difference that he makes to lives, to people made in the image of God. And so what is man that God should be mindful of him? Well, man is the one that God sent forth his son to die on the cross so that you would be made into his image restored to his image that's what you are you want to know the value of your life look at the cross you want to know the value of a sinless life look at the cross if you really want to appreciate the value of who you are and what you are meant to be then look at christ's life sacrificial death and his ascension look see pay attention and this is where you have, of course, the subtraction by addition. In other words, God who cannot be contained is somewhat, somewhat in the incarnation contained in a human form. Truly and fully God and truly and fully man. At the same time, without any confusion. And this is the beauty of our redemption in Christ Jesus. So what is man? that God should be mindful of him. It can be understood in a number of ways, all of which lead to the same and wonderful conclusion. You are the one whom Christ has died for. You're the one made in his image. And you're the one who has been set free to live a life of godliness. The value of a sinless life is measured and seen in the death of Christ. So you want to know how important it is not to sin? Think of Christ's death. You want to know how important it is to live in a way where you get to experience something truly beautiful? Christ died for you to take that sin away from you. So I have really one point that I want to focus on. Really one point, and it's this. That what is man that God should be mindful of him in the light that life is not an experiment. Okay, what is man? Because we live in a time, even when Christians, we're Christians, 
are treating life as if it is an experiment, as if it is something still to be figured out, as if we haven't been given the necessary wisdom to live the life that God has actually caused us to live. Now, I don't mean choosing what we'll do in the future. That's always difficult, okay? Because we choose one thing and God directs our path in a different way. And sometimes we just have to figure out what God is doing. That there does feel a little bit like, well, I'll try this and I'll try that. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is that life should not be treated as an experiment in terms of truth, in terms of goodness, and in terms of beauty. And what are you, and what are you for? What is man that God should be mindful of him? And so the passage here in verses 4, 5, and 6 in particular allows us to see that we get to live in blessing under the divine obligation. That the dominion that Adam had and lost is now been given to Christ. And we in Christ have that dominion by virtue of being in him. That's how it works. So Adam was given dominion. When Satan came along and tempted him, okay, he had dominion over Satan, which he did not exercise. Because Adam was given dominion over every created thing, and he did not exercise his dominion. And by not exercising that dominion, fell into sin through disobedience, through doing the very thing that God told him not to do. And now this is restored, this dominion is restored in the person of Christ Jesus. And those who are in Christ Jesus get to share in that dominion. In other words, we live under the divine obligation. We live under the lordship of Christ. And therefore, everything that we do, everything that we do, our marriages, the church, the way that we raise our children, the education that we give them, how we think about the future, everything is subject to the lordship of Christ. We give nothing to the world to do. We do not hand over anything to the world to tell us how things ought to be ordered because we live under the divine obligation and we live under the lordship of Christ and therefore now everything is questionable in the sense that well how do I know how to parent am I doing it correctly how do I know how to raise my children and discipline them? Am I doing it correctly? How do I know how to educate my children? How do I know what marriage is? How do I know how to work? How do I know when to rest? How do I know how to give? How do I know how to help? Now everything, when seen under the dominion of Christ, under the Lordship of Christ, now allows us to see that there is a standard by which you do what you do. And if you do it in your own way, then it's a subjective reality. You're living under your own lordship rather than the lordship of Christ. And that's really what these few verses are drawing our attention to. That all dominion, all power, and all authority belongs to Christ, of which we are blessed in by our union with Christ. The innumerable blessings that we receive as we live under the divine obligation, are blessings that we can only have in union with Christ. God is able to do things for you in a moment that you couldn't do in 10,000 years. Because this is where the source of all blessing comes from. Even your ability to work 
comes from God. And so now that we begin to ask this question, what is man? In all of man's activities, in all of man's imaginations, in all of man's pursuits, what is man that God is mindful of him? Well, suddenly this is not just a singular idea anymore. This includes everything. Mankind is the creation of God. And man is made in the image of God. And in that, there is truth, goodness, and beauty. And the divine obligation is something that leads not to oppression, but to blessing. To bring yourself under the truth rather than suppress the truth is to be led into blessing. No person who suppresses the truth is ever blessed by the truth because they're entertaining lies, delusion. They're exchanging the glory of God for worthless things. And that exchange is a corrupt exchange. You're, you're led into corruption. And so in Psalm 110, this is stated clearly, not necessarily the, the corruption itself, but the distinction between those in Christ and those out of Christ. Because it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that's the time that we currently live in. Christ is at the right hand of God, reigning, and the, his enemies are being made his footstool. There's the dominion of Christ being exercised. Have we got to see it in his fullness, in part? Of course, not in fullness, but in part. And are we going to recognize that when Christ returns, what is currently corrupt will no longer be there? Of course. All of corruption, all of sin will be removed because that's how the dominion of God works. That works over time. The power is exercised over time. And so here we are living as Christians, part of that new heavens and new earth, part of that future, experiencing the reality in our minds and in the reading of God's word, and experience the blessings now of the future that we will inherit, but also the fact that Christ dwells within our very heart as we live. So simply put, it is not possible for a man, woman, boy, or girl to ever be fulfilled outside of belonging to Christ. It is just not possible. It is not possible to be fulfilled. It is not possible to be satisfied outside of belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who treat life as an experiment are a bit like Godwin Shelley. Godwin Shelley was the husband of Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley was the woman who wrote Frankenstein. And in the book Frankenstein, um, in chapter 10, Mary Shelley says this in the book. And she's speaking, um, she's speaking to Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, you know, you've got Frankenstein's monster. But even though she's speaking to Frankenstein, she's really speaking to her husband. But she's speaking to her husband through the narrative of Frankenstein. And this is what she says. She says, how dare you sport thus with life? Do your duty towards me and I will do mine towards you and the rest of mankind. In other words, if we don't, we create monsters. 
Frankenstein is really a story about the godlessness of her husband. That he married her while he was still married to another woman. And of course, the, everything else that goes with it meant that he was sporting with life. I can do whatever I like. You can, but not without creating monsters. And the guilt that you can never get away from. And sometimes this happens. I used, back in the day, to write book reviews for a Christian magazine, and they would send me, every few months, about three or four books. And it was a bit like a pick and mix. Some were good, some were not so good. And one of these books came through, was a t this was about 15 years ago, was a title called Your Best Life Now. And it was written by... Um, <laughs> I feel terrible saying this, being a Cornishman, but it was written by an American. Um, and it gave a list of... I read this book in order to review it, and it gave a list of exercises of self-affirming things that you need to do in front of the mirror. So I thought, I'll give it a go. <laughs> so I opened the book, and I stood in front of the mirror at the bottom of my stairs in our old house and went... You're amazing. You're incredible. You're an overcomer. You are just filled with greatness. And my wife came down the stairs and said, who do you think you're kidding? <laughs> who is man that God should be mindful of him? Who am I? Well, I am what I am before God and nothing more. But what I am before God in Christ Jesus is everything I could possibly hope for. Everything I could possibly hope for. Don't sport with life. Don't treat it as an experiment. Begin to see that God is one who has already given us truth, goodness, and beauty. And in its objective form, it is the very best of the very best of the very best. God is revealing himself to you. And as he does that, he is bringing you in to relationship with him. Well, let me conclude. Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise, drawing your attention to the reality of God so that you would praise him as well. The blessed life is a life defined by divine obligation. And those divine obligations are truth, goodness, and beauty. That as they permeate our thinking, as they permeate our living, as they permeate our working, as they permeate everything, we begin to enjoy that which we can only joy in Christ Jesus, which we can never get from the world. And hence, our praise will be just like the psalmist, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, I ask of you this morning that you would allow us to see in your word and through your word to your greatness, to how majestic you are in all of creation. And Father God, if we don't see it because of the sin that we are harboring and holding on to, we pray first that we would be convicted to repent of that sin 
so that we may see the beauty of who you really are and have a life that is truly fulfilled and satisfied only in Christ Jesus. Amen.